such a lovely day yesterday, wasn't it? All bright and sunny and golden, and today it's a bit grey and cold. My phone, when I woke up this morning, told me it was minus two. It's definitely not very spring-like, but it's good to be together to worship God this morning. Our call to worship today is some verses from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you have no delight in sacrifice. If I were to give a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Our opening hymn of praise this morning is found in the purple hymn book, number 38, and is also on the screen. Here in this place, new light is streaming, and if you're able, you're invited to stand as we sing.
Our prayer of approach this morning is taken from the anthology Gathering for Worship. And after I've led us in that prayer, we're invited to join together in the Lord's Prayer in whichever language and version feels the most natural for us. So let's come to God together in prayer. Let's pray. Come, Lord Jesus. You blessed the children and dined with outcasts, spared the sinner and forgave the offender. Speak to us again of love. We long to be sure of your welcome. Come, Lord Jesus. You humbled the proud and exalted the humble, proclaimed good news to the poor and released to the captives. Speak to us again of justice. We long for our world to be changed. Come, Lord Jesus. You felt terror at the future, begged your disciples' prayers, and needed another to shoulder your cross. Speak to us again of humility. We long to know you, in our frailty. Come, Lord Jesus. You faced the torture of oppressors and died abandoned on the cross. Speak to us again of suffering. We long to meet you in our pain. Come, Lord Jesus. You left the tomb empty and promised us the spirit. Speak to us again of new life. We long to trust you for the future. Lord Jesus Christ, so deep is your love that nowhere are we excluded from it. Help us to know you in our doubt as well as our faith our weakness, as well as our strength. That meeting you in our depths may lift us to your heights. And so we join together in the pattern of prayer that Jesus taught as we say together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever.
When I was a little girl growing up, one of the things my parents were really strict about was table manners. You had to sit up to the table for all your meals. You had to hold your knife and fork properly, as defined by my parents, what properly was, because other people's parents seemingly had different ideas. And you weren't allowed your elbows on your table. And I was a bit of a one, and I still am, for putting my elbows on the table. I didn't mean it. It wasn't like, I'm going to do this because I'm going to wind my mum and dad up. I just used to do it without thinking. And I would get told off, get your elbows off the table, Katrina. And I would say, sorry. And then the next time we sat up to the table, guess what? Oops. I did it again. I wonder if anybody else has things like that. You don't mean to do the thing that is wrong. You don't mean to do the thing that gets you into trouble, but you still do. Or is it just me? Is it just me that puts her elbows on the table? Or whatever it is. Apparently it is. Apparently everybody else is perfect. Okay, right, I'll just go now then, shall I? When Jesus and his friends were going around... One day, one of his, Peter, his friends called Peter said to him, if somebody does something that upsets me, something that's wrong, how many times should I forgive them? How many more chances should I give them, was really what he's saying. How about, hmm, that's a good big number. Seven, that's a lot of times to forgive. If I forgive them seven times, Jesus, is, is, is that right? You know, because that's, that's quite good. If, if somebody just kept up to me going... And then I said, oh, sorry, and they forgave me. And, you know, if Carl put up with that seven times, that would be pretty good, wouldn't it? And Jesus went, well, do you know what, Peter? I think more like 70 times seven. I don't know if Peter was very good at arithmetic, but that, he ran out of fingers pretty soon anyway, trying to, and toes. <laughs> and disciples and all the toes and fingers and probably into the crowd. Who can tell me what 70 times 7 is? Who's good at... uh, Freya, straight in there, wasn't. 490. So what do you think happens on the 491st time? Do you think that you cannot forgive somebody if they do it 491 times? Do you think that's what Jesus means? Absolutely right with your sums, by the way, Freya. Thank you. Of course he doesn't mean that, yeah, what, one, two, oh, right, 398, 399, 400, right, we got there, 490, that's it. Of course he doesn't. What he really means is you stop counting. We go on forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. And we know there is nothing we can do that God won't forgive us. Well, if you're a really picky Bible scholar, there is something, but nobody knows what it means, so we, we don't need to worry about it. There is nothing we can ever do that will say to God, we'll say, right, that's it. You've had 490 chances. You're going away. I'm not forgiving you anymore. What he's really saying is, go on forgiving you forever and ever and ever. And of course we should try not to do the things. And I still, sometimes when I elbows go on the table, I remember my dad's voice and take them down and try to be a nice, polite, well-behaved, grown-up person. Of course we don't deliberately carry on doing things. That's why I called it ups, I did it again. Because this isn't about setting out to be bad. This is about the fact that even when we try our hardest, we make mistakes. 
And sometimes we go on doing the same things over and over. But Jesus told his friends they had to forgive so many times they couldn't count it. Because that's what God does. God forgives us so many times that neither we nor even God, I suspect, can count. In fact, the Bible says when God forgives us, God immediately chooses to forget what we did. So it's like we start for the first time, every time with God, which is pretty amazing. I actually found a song about this. I don't know what tune we're singing it to because it's um, one that Paul's picking a tune for because I didn't have a, a tune for it. But it talks about how many times we should forgive. Thank you, Paul. The first of our lessons this morning comes from the Old Testament in the book of Numbers at chapter 5. And in the New International Version, the heading on this section is The Test of an Unfaithful Wife. Then the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If a man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him, so that another man has sexual relations with her, and this is hidden from her husband, and her impurity is undetected, since there is no witness against her and she has not been caught in the act. And if feelings of jealousy come over her husband and he suspects his wife and she is impure, or if he is jealous and suspects her even though she is not impure, then he is to take his wife to the priest. 
he must also take an offering of a tenth of an ephah of barley flour on her behalf. He must not pour olive oil on it or put incense on it because it is a grain offering for jealousy, a reminder offering to draw attention to wrongdoing. And then at verse 29, This then is the law of jealousy. When a woman goes astray and makes herself impure while married to her husband, or when feelings of jealousy come over a man because he suspects his wife, the priest is to make her stand before the Lord and is to apply this entire law to her. The husband will be innocent of any wrongdoing, but the woman will bear the consequences of her sin. And then from the New Testament in John chapter 11, it's John chapter 9, verses 1 to 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered round him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Amen. So this is the second of our three explorations of shocking gospel stories involving women. Stories that ought to disturb our ease, but because we've heard them so many times, our senses have become dulled, and perhaps we think we do know all there is to know from these stories. We've heard all that God wants to say to us through them. And so sometimes it is good for us to revisit them, 
perhaps from a slightly oblique angle, and to be shaken out of that complacency, to hear something different that perhaps God wants us to hear. The story of the woman caught out in the act of adultery is one that very nearly didn't make it into the Bible. Usually it will appear in parentheses at the start of chapter 8 of the Gospel of John and has no direct link to the text around it. If you miss that story out, John's Gospel would still make sense. And it isn't even conclusively demonstrated that it is part of John's Gospel. There is certainly some evidence that it could be more properly attributed to Luke. I believe there are early copies of Luke's Gospel that contain this story. And yet for all this, for all that it nearly didn't make it into the Bible, it's one of the best known, best loved and most preached upon stories in all of the Gospels. You might be relieved to know that unlike the bleeding woman last week, I've got no life experience to directly parallel that of the adulterous woman. There's not going to be any nasty confessions or any shocking confessions, so be relieved. Be very relieved. And yet, in every church that I've been part of down the years, there have been people, mostly men but occasionally women, whose extramarital affairs have come to light. And I suspect a whole lot more that didn't. And just because any of us can say, hands on heart, that we have never committed adultery, at least not in the full-on biblical sense of consensual sexual intercourse, involving at least one person already married to another, it's entirely possible that some of us, at least, have found ourselves involved in relationships that could oh so easily have slid into something that was dangerous or unhealthy had the circumstances been ever so slightly different. I honestly cannot imagine that anybody wakes up one morning and thinks, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to start an adulterous relationship. I think that's just a daft idea. Instead, I suspect it needs a lot of factors to arise coincidentally or sequentially without healthy checks and balances along the way. In the days when I was an engineer, I quite often travelled away on business and would stay at various hotels where there were other people, male and female, doing the same thing. Whether all hoteliers indulge in what is at best mischief, I don't know. But I would often find myself seated in the dining room at a table for one, in direct lines of sight of a man facing exactly the opposite way. There was some mischief-making going on, at least at some level. And there was also an extended period that myself and two male colleagues, all as it happened, single, regularly travelled together to the same hotel. And week in, week out, myself and, I'll call him Peter, would be put at one end of the hotel, and I'll call him Stephen, would be put at the other end of the hotel. Peter and I would be given adjoining rooms, And it was quite clear what the hotel staff were trying to engineer. 
had any of us been interested, the opportunity was there. And it felt to us, anyway, because we used to laugh about it, that the hotels were encouraging it. The truth was they had no idea if any of us was strictly single or not. They were just mischief-making. But opportunity in and of itself isn't enough. There has to be an invitation or an initiation by one party or the other. And I can tell you today that over the years I have had more than a few invitations from married men, mostly though not exclusively Christians, including a long-standing Baptist minister. He was an overseas exchange student, and he wasted no time at all in telling me about his mistress back home, and that he was looking for someone to fulfil that role whilst he was in the UK. Well, to say I was shocked is an understatement. To say I was horrified is another understatement, and I can assure you I was not remotely interested. I reported the matter to the college authorities and I steered clear of him ever after. Somebody has to make the first move and the other person has to say, okay. Having the opportunity and the invitation won't automatically lead to an adulterous relationship. You have to be persuaded that this is a path worth taking. And whilst physical attraction may be a factor and may influence who is approached, the reality is that's rarely the prime motivator for such relationships. They very often start out, innocently enough, two co-workers who spend a lot of time together. And for people who are lonely or demoralised or unfulfilled or otherwise emotionally vulnerable it can be quite easy to find comfort, affirmation, and even a new sense of excitement with this person in a life that is otherwise dull and routine or disabling. One thing can lead to another unless one of them says enough and calls a halt. Ministers resign. Deacons step down. Worship group leaders disappear. Colleagues at work resign for personal reasons or move to another site or another department. I've seen all of those, and so I suspect have any of us. And if we're honest, with a slightly different combination of circumstances, it possibly could have been any one of us too. If it does nothing else, the story of the woman reminds us of our own vulnerability and the need to safeguard ourselves and others to minimise the risk of hurting or being hurt as a result. But before we go on and explore what there might be discovered from the Bible passages... I want to just take a slight sidestep and suggest that adultery need not be sexual. Indeed, it need not be centred in a one-to-one exclusive human relationship. If I've correctly identified as motivators for adultery factors such as loneliness, isolation, lack of fulfilment, disappointment, emotional hunger and so on, 
then it's also the case that there are many, many ways people may attempt to alleviate them, all ultimately doomed to disappoint and destroy because they're avoiding facing the real issues, evading uncomfortable truths. The colleague who endlessly volunteers for overtime or who's eager to work away from home for extended periods of time. The colleague who works late even when there isn't any overtime because going home is the last thing they want to do. Or the colleague that leaves work and goes to the nearest bar cradling a pint all evening or more self-destructively drinking more and more in a forlorn attempt to dull the pain. The person in church will do anything for anyone, apart from their own family, because their otherwise unmet need for affirmation is met in the gratitude of those they help. Just because our sexual morals are beyond reproach doesn't mean all is well. Just because no one names it as adultery or outs us to family or friends, does not ultimately mean that we get away with it. And so to the Bible, and firstly, very briefly, to the extract from Numbers. I have to say, this is a particularly offensive passage of Scripture, so much so that I deliberately omitted the details of the humiliating and barbaric ritual a woman could be subjected to should her husband suspect her of adultery. I chose to read the part that we heard purely and simply to remind us that from the earliest days, gender inequality has been enshrined in law and holy writ. This is not a feminist rant, but it's a fact. The woman is there, she can be taken before the priest. There's nothing about taking the man before the priest. And in this code, we find that the man, even if his suspicion is unfounded and maybe malicious, gets off free. The woman, however, remains culpable. At best, the case is not proven rather than not guilty. But it's important to have that background Because then we begin to understand how it is possible for a woman who is caught in the act to be dragged through the streets to the edge of the temple whilst the man seemingly gets away with it. Surely it takes two to tango? That the woman is guilty, there is no doubt. The very words of scripture cannot fail to create in our minds if we stay there long enough Images that are vivid, explicit, and even potentially pornographic. I once chose to deliver a sermon on this story from the perspective of the woman. I stood at the lectern as usual. It was in an Anglican church as it happens. I was wearing a navy suit and court shoes. My then very long hair was swept up into a bun. And I invited people to close their eyes as I described the scene. They were very obedient, and they did. And whilst they did so, I very quietly slipped on a long dressing gown over my clothes, kicked off my shoes, let down my hair, refling it as I did so, and then I invited them to open their eyes. And the effect 
was palpable. Perhaps for the first time, some of them grasped how shocking this story is. A dishevelled woman facing her accusers, knowing she's guilty, knowing that they have the power to order her death, whilst the man, as was the way of things, got away with it. Jesus was interrupted from what he was doing, and his own audience will be shocked and bewildered by this turn of events. He has a look, and he sees the rocks held ready in their hands. And he speaks those all too familiar words. Let the one who has no sin cast the first stone. And one by one, they drop the stones and slip away. An old man recalls something he still regrets years afterwards. An official becomes aware of his own guilty secret. One, then another, they remember and leave. And Jesus looks at this woman clutching her clothes around her hair, messed up, fear in her eyes. And he says to her, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. All my life, I've heard this as a strict injunction, a kind of, well, okay, I'll forgive you this time, but don't do it again with a kind of implicit, left something worse before you. All my life I've heard people cite these words, not gently, but with a sense of warning. Jesus may have forgiven the woman, but he also said, love the sinner, hate the sin, and make sure they know the score. Sin is a really tricky word. It's a word the meaning of which has shifted and changed over time. A word that is all too often restricted to chosen commission of acts deemed to be wrong. The very old confessional prayer that very rarely is used nowadays recognises the potential of negligence or ignorance and weakness as well as deliberate fault. Sins of omission may be recognised but we're not always quite sure what they are. But what if instead we used sin in its first century meaning? What if we see sin as falling short of a target? Because that's its original meaning. It came from archery and you shot your arrow, you aimed at the target and it just landed short. Does that make a difference to how we hear what Jesus says to the woman or indeed to us? What if Jesus looks at the woman and doesn't say, don't do it again, but rather, you're worth so much more than this. This is way short of what God desires for you. What if he says to her, don't settle for being someone's mistress, someone's bit on the side. Don't be the other woman for whom he will never actually leave his wife. Don't be the one who's just there for a dirty weekend, but ultimately will die alone and lonely. What if he says to us in whatever situation we find ourselves in, offers us a cheap, temporary escape from emptiness or loneliness or whatever, this isn't good enough for you. 
You deserve so much more. Walk away. Walk away. Start again. Because that's what I think he's saying. You're worth so much more than this second-rate, tawdry sham of love. And I've also found myself wondering, perhaps for the first time properly, about the man in the story. The woman's guilt is exposed. Everybody knows who she is. Everybody knows what's happened. And for a while, it will be the first century equivalent of the talk of the steamy. But it will also be forgotten in a few weeks because there'll be some other scandal to spread, some new gossip to savour. This woman, having been set free from judgment and assured of her worth, can build a new life. But not the man. Those who caught them will know who he is, but otherwise it seems like he got away with it. But did he? He has to carry that guilty secret for the rest of his life. He has the possibility that one day somebody will out him. And no matter how much he tries to forget, no matter how much he works at his marriage, he will always know. Now, I'm not saying that he should have been outed, far from it. And I'm not saying he should have told his wife. I'm just wondering how he might have been able to find forgiveness and freedom if he too had heard Jesus say, this isn't what I want for you. Go and live worthily of who you are. Maybe some of us are a little bit in the place of the man. Perhaps somewhere at the back of our minds are old regrets. Maybe we have memories that make us feel uncomfortable or squirm. Maybe there are things we'd love to undo or unsay, but we cannot. And perhaps in the world's eyes, we have got away with whatever it was. But deep inside, we haven't. If that's the case, maybe we need to imagine ourselves in the place of the woman, standing alone in the presence of Jesus, And hear him speaking to us those same words. Move on. Leave that behind. Be the person you were made to be. It's a really shocking story, this one. It's a story of gender-based discrimination that actually does not get challenged. Nobody in the story questions where the man is. But it's also a story about vulnerable, potentially unhappy people making bad choices and being caught out. And in the case of the woman, publicly being shamed. It's a story that could be our story. It's a story that says to us in our quest for love or for affirmation or acceptance or whatever it is that adultery, excess alcohol, working late or whatever temporary fix it might be is never going to satisfy us. It's always going to fall short of what God desires for us. 
But importantly, it's a story that says there's an alternative. It says you can begin again. All is not lost. And perhaps, too, it's a story about healing, of making whole. The woman can go away, set free. Perhaps, too, then, it's a story of redemption. I like to think that perhaps on those days when we feel hopeless, it's a story that can offer each one of us some hope. So we sing together, Lord, we come to ask your healing. let us bring our prayers to God for others and for ourselves. Let us pray. O God our Father, as we gather here today in worship, we do as a family of your people. We give thanks for all that that word family means to each of us in this community. We give thanks for the fellowship of this church family. We give thanks for the companionship of the family. We give thanks for the support of the family. And we give thanks for the love of the family members for one another. And this church here at Hillhead is not a family in isolation, for we are part of an 
ever-widening pattern of circles from this fellowship outwards to the Baptist unions of Scotland and Great Britain and the other concentric circles which encompass the church denominations of every faith and order through this land and the whole wide world. We praise and bless the memory of all those who initiated these many church communities and give thanks for all their witness and service down the years to this very day. But we remember that the model of the family is a reflection of the primary unit amongst human groups, that of the human family of parents and children and the wider circle of relatives, those who have given us birth and those who follow after. And while we realise the importance of the family to nurture and support us from infancy and protect and educate and encourage us as we move through life, we also recall that many family units today have suffered brokenness and discord so that love is hard to find and a great cloud of sadness has descended on those who otherwise might live in love and concord. Dear God, we live in a complicated world where relationships follow different patterns from the traditional ones of past generations. And we would seek to understand how life has been shaped by new approaches to living. Help us to understand and not condemn ourselves or others when partnerships of whatever kind come under strain, when love grows cold, when despite all attempts at reconciliation, the only way forward is to move apart. Lord, we would hold before you today all those who find themselves in abusive and destructive relationships, and we would ask that you might help to bring comfort and peace in the midst of turmoil. Lord, we realize that each one of us is a unique individual, loved by God, whose Son laid down his life for our salvation. So let us seek to live our lives as children of God. Help us to maximize our potential and make a worthwhile contribution in the world so that in whatever context we find ourselves living that life in close relationship with another or in some other form of community, may we seek to promote the welfare of others. Help us not to condemn others, but rather with a generous and forgiving heart, seek to bless them by our whole life and attitude towards them. Teach us to seek the good in others and not the guilt in their living or in ours. Lord, we would recall the world of this past week when new circumstances continue to challenge our leaders and ourselves. We pray for integrity in government and industry so that whether it's a matter of the proper payment of taxes or the professional responsibilities for uh, for issues arising from the school's crisis in Edinburgh, that not only our leaders, but we ourselves may act fairly and speak the truth in all our dealings. Finally, we pray for all those who are anxious today, those who are concerned about their own health or that of a loved one, those who live in grinding poverty in far-off lands and near at hand, those whose spirits are low and they are surrounded by a cloud of depression, those who are anxious about pressures of work and those who are anxious as they cannot find meaningful work. Lord, we uphold all these many souls before you now, and we ourselves would place our hand in yours, certain that you will never leave or neglect those who come to you in faith 
and trust. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Holy and generous God, forgiving, accepting and desiring the best for us and for all creation, we bring these our gifts of money and bring ourselves just as we are, imperfect and vulnerable and frail, and ask that you accept us as givers and these gifts to be employed in your service in this community and beyond. Amen. Our closing hymn is one of the golden oldies. Come, let us sing of a wonderful love, tender and true, out of the heart of the Father above, streaming to me and to you.
God of endless forgiveness and countless fresh new starts, as we go from here, forgiven and free, bless us with the courage and humility to free and forgive others, today and always. Thank you.